What is it that is driving so many Americans now to be angry beyond reason and looking for extreme answers to the, the problems that, that they see? It's Aspen Ideas to go. I'm Trisha Johnson. It's difficult to ignore the anger in the United States. Talking heads battle on cable news, protesters get violent at campaign rallies, and families can't talk politics around the dinner table. What's fueling the anger? And how can it be managed? Today's episode will explore the roots of this rage. Aspen Ideas To Go is a weekly podcast that features compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other events presented by the Aspen Institute. Former Republican Congressman Mickey Edwards, who you heard at the top of the show, blames the anger bubbling up in America on several things. He's concerned about crowds at campaign rallies continuing to cheer Donald Trump, even after the Republican nominee makes statements that aren't true. The media is another source of anxiety. I don't know, you all remember Les Moonves, the president of CBS, who watching the Trump campaign said, well, I don't know if Trump is good for America, but he's good for CBS, you know, and, and watching how the media, you know, was actually, in my view, not living up to its job. Edwards fears our political system gives enormous power to the most extreme and partisan people. Even the education system lacks lessons on humanities and civics, he says, so students miss out on how to think critically about government. Uh, and so I, I've been concerned about what, what are the bedrock things that, that our democracy rests upon that are failing, that are simultaneously not doing their jobs. Edwards, who also serves as vice president of the Aspen Institute, sat down with the CEO of think tank New America, Anne-Marie Slaughter, Yale Law professor Stephen Carter, and Arthur Brooks, who runs the American Enterprise Institute. Their discussion dubbed An Angry America was held at the Aspen Ideas Festival in June. Maybe, maybe the disruption that's happening in America has a lot of causes, not just globalization, not just competition for jobs, not just, you know, wages being frozen, uh, you know, and a lot of the frustration comes from that. But we have to figure out, we have to start analyzing, what is it that is driving so many Americans now to be angry beyond reason and looking for extreme answers to the, the problems that, that they see. So, Anne-Marie, uh, unlucky enough, you chose to sit next to me. I'm delighted that you did, but you are therefore first. So, where do you think, how, where, where's this anger coming from? Is justified? What should we do about it? What do you think? So I don't, I will start by agreeing just with the level of anger. I think that's evident. I will just say I see it on social media. I have a large Twitter following the level of nastiness, which frankly, as a woman on social media, and there's a lot of data on this, you get it anyhow, but it's a, it is a viciousness that is almost frightening uh, and, and quite impervious to fact, not that Twitter is the best place to have a reasoned dialogue. But I want to be more optimistic, mean, not optimistic exactly, but I want to put this in larger context. Uh, and I want to start by saying I think what we are seeing is anger at a disruption of our economy and really our social order of the magnitude that we saw when the agricultural age gave way to the industrial age. So just to remind you, when the industrial age completely upended how people lived and worked from small cottage industry farming villages 
to going to factories in another place from your family to work, which is the same kind of profound upheaval we're seeing now, we got Marxism. We got Marxism and we got World War I and then we got World War II. Though that upheaval that <laughs> many of us here are old enough to remember was a direct outgrowth of the changes wrought by the Industrial Revolution. And that is what we are seeing the beginnings of today. The digital revolution, from moving from in the Industrial Revolution to a digital revolution that we're just at the beginning of. We're about where Steve Watt inventing the tea kettle in terms of what's coming. It's completely upending how we work, what the sources of value are, how people can support their, their families, if they can at all. And it creates tremendous fear and rage in the sense that you are at the mercy of forces you cannot control. Just think about all of us, just a little example, think about what happens when your technology that you depend on goes down and it's a black box and you can't fix it, but your life depends on it. Unreasoning rage, at least in my case, uh, many times, right? I mean, just little example. And then imagine what that feels like when those forces are completely upending your assumption about the life you're going to lead. Will you be able to support a family? Will you be able to support yourself? I look at my own sons who have every privilege going, and they assume they will not have our standard of living, and they're not sure how they're going to make a living. Not, they don't doubt that they will be able to, but they can't see that path in the way that I could see a path. And they're, they're not in the very top, but they are certainly the, the privileged members of this society. So that's my starting point, is these, this is a much bigger tempest that is tossing our world. And we've seen it before, and we're going to be living with it probably for decades. And when we talk about the future of work and the future of family and the redrawing of the social contract, yes, we're going to have to do all of that just as we did. And it took, it took two, two centuries, really, or a century uh, and a bit, and it may be faster now because everything's faster now. So that's the first thing I want to say. But then I also want to say there are many brighter spots than we are seeing. If you, anybody who's followed Jim, Fall Jim Fallows and Deb Fallows' American Futures, where the Atlantic and Aspen Ideas Festival, Jim has spent the last three years flying with his wife around the country in a small plane, going to smaller communities and cities. Uh, and he has found what I also see as I travel the country and give speeches, which is in those smaller cities, you are seeing American renewal. You are seeing mayors, Republican or Democrat, coming together with the corporate environment, with corporate leaders and civic leaders saying, we have to fix our education system because we don't have people who can work in the factories around us. So we're going to have to pull together and do that. And that may be an apprenticeship system, and that may be investing in community college, but it's happening. And people coming together and saying, you know, we've destroyed the places we live in. We have to recreate it. So I also want to say, and then I want, I want to listen, um, from where I sit, and I do run an organization called New America, and it is dedicated to the renewal of America in the digital age, there are many, many, many engines of that renewal. But we don't see them. They're certainly not in Washington, and in many ways not on the coasts, and they are nowhere in our media. But we are, as we have before. And remember 1918, Louis Brandeis, Laboratories of Democracy, 
we are renewing our economic, our political, and our social system from the bottom up. Yeah. Stephen, uh, is, is it the change in what's happening? Is it is the pace of change? What, or what is it? What, what, what's the problem here? Well, let me start by saying that I, I, I think I agree with pretty much everything that Anne-Marie said, but I also, in the end, go in a slightly different direction. Uh, the first thing I want to say is there's nothing wrong with anger in politics. It's not inherently bad. If we're inherently bad, we'd be in a lot of trouble because anger has been a feature of our political system uh, since George Washington retired and decided not to run for a third term, and we had to decide who was going to uh, uh, replace him. Unreasoning anger has been a feature of politics for a very long time. News media that do a terrible job and aren't interested in the facts have been a feature for a very long time, and somehow we've muddled through uh, all of those things and all of these great transitions, and there are other transitions as well, that is the transition um, uh, to modernity, which is still stirring our world and is stirring the larger world. You see it stirring the Islamic world. You see it elsewhere as well. Um, that's an enormous transition. That's a transition where we ask people to surrender their worldviews, the worldviews that have guided them, made, given sense to the narrative of their lives. And we're saying to them, you know what, out with the old, in with the new. Even if that's a correct thing to do in some cases, we have to recognize that's an another enormous, enormous uh, uh, transition. If you, and, and we've seen this before. You know, again, you, not all transitions are economic. You think of the Copernican Revolution, think of the Darwinian Revolution. What we saw in each of those was um, what you could refer to as anger, but what it really is, I, I, I think, is a determination to hold on to those things that I think give meaning to my life. Now, in the current age, in the current electoral cycle, I can't, I, I don't have any way of measuring how many people are angry or just seem to be angry. Um, you asked uh, uh, Mickey about uh, the people who go to these Donald Trump rallies and so on. I wrote a little a piece for Bloomberg about that, which I suggested analyzing it by thinking about uh, what's known as the economics of fame. And the, in the economic analysis of fame, there are several different ways you attain fame, but the important thing is once you have fame, what you will do in order to keep it. There are people, we all know them, entertainers, some musicians, some actors, say, who maintain their celebrity in part through outrageousness. And the outrage is seen by the economists. The study is a signal to the fans, don't worry, I will never be part of the establishment. And so fans who don't agree with a particular outrageous act like they're not going to follow Ozzy Osbourne and biting off the head of a bird on stage or something like that. Nevertheless, we'll keep following him, celebrating him, because they like the outrageousness. That's evidence for him. The more outrageous he is, the more evidence that he'll never be part of the establishment. And so if you imagine a kind of anti-establishment, anti-elite anger, it's actually very easy to understand why people would, would cheer Donald Trump for saying things they actually don't agree with, because he's signaling them don't worry, I'm, I'm never going to back off, I'm I'm gonna be part, I, I will never be part of the establishment, and so on. And it doesn't matter if you think he means any of this. And it doesn't matter if you think it, what you think of the people who follow him, although I hope you have some degree of empathy for their situation. But what matters is to understand the phenomenon <coughs> that, that uh, anger can attach itself to outrage if the anger itself is aimed at elites. At Yale Law School, uh, we did a study of our entering class a few years ago, and more than half the class 
uh, was from the top one half of 1% of the income that their parents were, not the students. Well, some of them were students, but not most of them. Uh, their, their parents were in the top one half of 1%. And this is a place where we train leaders and so on. And you see this phenomenon uh, all over the place. One last point um, uh, about what, what Mickey said. So uh, do we fix this with education? Do we fix this? I don't know if we can fix it. I, I, I don't know if it I, I'm not sure this is fixable. For the reasons in part that Anne-Marie said, that I'm not sure what it is we can, we can fix. I would like Americans to know more about how government works, but if they don't know, they're still entitled to their views. I expect there are issues that you and I in this room could debate, and you would say, Carter's a fool. He doesn't understand that issue at all. You know, But I hope I'm still entitled to my view and my vote. Well, if I did vote, I'd be entitled to my uh, 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 to my vote and so on. I don't know if it's fixable, but I do think that to the extent that education focuses heavily on skills, heavily on fill those factory jobs, we do begin to lose the other component. You, it, we're stuck in that sense. On the one hand, there are things our kids need to learn in order to function in the new world. On the other hand, there are values and virtues that are central to democracy, and frankly, I would say central to America, uh, that we should be debating and talking about that our kids also need to have inculcated. Because inculcating values is extremely hard work, and if there's not general cooperation in it, it can't be done. It's Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Our featured speakers are examining the atmosphere of anger in America today. One panelist, Arthur Brooks, says we shouldn't regret the presence of anger in society. The anger, particularly justifiable anger, uh, when we're angry on behalf of people who have less power than we do, that's a good thing. That's, that's actually the mark of a good society, and that's the, that's the nature of a politics that's actually standing up for people who are powerless, people who are at the periphery of society. So I don't think we should regret anger, per se. But the problem is when anger is the salient characteristic of a political system. And, and there's a name. That's populism. Populism is driven by grievance. And grievance is the rocket fuel of anger that becomes truly salient, becomes truly central to a political system. And that happens really, really regularly. Um, there's a very interesting study that's uh, just being published right now in the European Economic Review, which is a prestigious economics journal, in, in, um, obviously, in, across the Atlantic. And three German economists were looking at financial crises, not regular recessions, financial crises, over the past 140 years in 20 advanced economies over 800 elections. And one of these countries was not the United States, by the way. It was, it was European countries. And, and what did they find? They found that, <laughs> that after a financial crisis, but not a regular recession, the average knock-on political impact of that was a 30% increase in the vote share of right-wing populist parties. In other words, this is math that we're seeing today. Now, the, the difference in the United States, if you look back through history, which we don't do very much. We don't use history very much in the United States. We look forward not backwards that much. But when you do look at financial crises, you see that populism is not necessarily just a right-wing phenomenon. As, as Anne-Marie pointed out, it can be a left-wing phenomenon as well. And, and there are lots of cases of that. I mean, and, and it's so instructive to what we see today. And if you look back at you know, a famous old name that's kind of irrelevant to us in a weird way is William Jennings Bryan, uh, who was the, the, the candidate for his party in, 19, in 1896. That was following on a, a, a financial crisis of 1893 where the, the railroads basically went bust because of overbuilding and dodgy financing. 
In other words, it's a great big bubble and it burst. And then in 1896, there was a silver bust and two financial crises, one on the heel of the other, had a deep recessionary impact. And, and the result was a man like William Jennings Bryan became the, the candidate for, his, for the Democratic Party and, and was the candidate, by the way, for three cycles. This stuff can last, cautionary tale here. It doesn't just go away, right? But, oh my but, God, and, and to give you an idea, yeah, and, and a, to give you an idea who William Jennings Bryan was, I mean, we just think about the Scopes Monkey Trial at this point. To give you an idea who he was, and he was the central character of the Democratic Party for 12 years, um, H.L. Mencken, the great writer, in his obituary of, of William Jennings Bryan said, and I quote, imagine a gentleman and you are imagining everything that he was not. <laughs> Sound familiar? It, this is, there's nothing new under the sun, my friends. Okay, so the real question then is how do societies get out of the cycle of populist grievance rage, the anger that we're talking about here? And that's what really, that's what's interesting to us because you know, those of us who are blessed with leadership positions, we have to be part of the solution. Because if we don't, then we're just kind of either checking out into a monastic type of existence or we're actually part of the problem. Now, looking right now, there are a couple of things that make the populist moment right now especially, uh, especially central to the experience. One, it's not just the ecosystem, which had historical inevitability. The second were a couple of black swan events that happened. One was that, that media are going bust, and they saw Donald Trump as bank. So CNN gave Donald Trump an 80% earned market share of earned media. 80%. I mean, that's, and they basically treated him like Anthony Bourdain, completely uncritically as a reality show star on CNN. I mean, and this is, a, you know, responsible fourth estate nonsense. It's about yeah. money. Yeah. It's about not going out of business for another year. That's what it comes down to. It's not right. And you know I'm right on this, because you, yet that's why you turned off the TV a few months ago. Right? The second is a field of 17 candidates on, on the Republican side. So these are basic anomalies that propel this to the candidacy. That notwithstanding, we've seen this before in history. What actually resolves this um, in relatively short order when it can be? And the answer is basically one thing, which is a moral consensus that comes from aspirational leadership. I know that's really amorphous, but let me try to nail that down a little bit. You know, we have a tendency uh, in, in our world, and Anne-Marie and I run think tanks, and the tendency for those of us that are you know, center-left or center-right to say that, you know, we've got to come together in the middle, right? That's not true. I think that you should hold the views that you hold. If you're a big right-winger or a big left-winger, that's great. But what we need to remember is the moral consensus of the American experiment, which is not an unprecedented historical event. And what is that? In my view, that's pushing opportunity to the people who need it the most. See, to commit a little bit of political science on you, one of the things that you find is that when a society is actually less outraged and cooperating more, it's not because everybody agrees politically. It's because a moral consensus is something around which concentrically different opinions can circulate as a competition of ideas. When the moral consensus collapses, and we're not talking about pushing opportunity to the people who need it the most, but rather, rather militating for my rights, what happens? That opposing viewpoints hit each other head on and become an ideological holy war, and that's what we see. So if we want to do something differently, those of us who are in positions of responsibility, we need to reestablish the moral consensus while preserving our particular ideological viewpoint. Oh, can I disagree? Oh, go ahead. Go for it. <laughs> I mean, it, so lots of things I, I liked, but I, 
how do we, I'm all for pushing opportunity to the most, those who need it most. I, I, will, I will sign on to that moral consensus. Uh, but we don't know, we're, we're looking at an economy where we have no idea what those jobs are. What we know is that the, we, the, a bifurcation of great jobs with huge rewards and really bad jobs that do not even support a family, right? You can work three minimum wage jobs and have fun trying to actually have a family, raise them, educate them. Uh, and those jobs, as just think about what we've seen even in the last two years, you walk into a CVS, there's no cashier anymore, right? So all those jobs are going. And frankly, accountant, pharmacist, any job that can be routinized as we develop ever more effective artificial intelligence, those jobs are going away. So we're looking at a future where even folks like us trying to think about what are the careers of our children or, or much less the wider society that we care deeply about don't have answers. We really don't have answers. I wish we did. That's why we're talking about things like, you know, the reason I think Silicon Valley likes universal basic income is because they're thinking, if we don't do something like that, the pitchforks are coming, right? That, that, because you're just getting this tremendous bifurcation, which is the nature of the technology. Now, I, I think we're going to find a way through, but I don't think it's as if we could just say, this is what we have to do, and here's how we have to do it. I'd be all for it. For it, but I don't think we know how to do that. I want to make one small comment uh, also about what Arthur said and what uh, Anne Rita said. There, there's another problem in building the, in rebuilding, let's say, this, the, the, this moral consensus, even with aspirational leadership. Um, and the problem is not just the politics have changed, we've changed as people, that we've changed in the sense of how we get along with uh, each other. I was in a conversation here in Aspen a few years ago. Uh, there was a, well, actually, this is probably a decade ago, but, but this is still the point of the story. This very senior uh, Democrat who was retiring from Congress, and I'm not hiding his name. I don't remember his name. <laughs> this is, I'm sorry I'm older than I used to be. That's the truth. We're, we're, we're easily forgettable. Right? <laughs> he was retiring, uh, and he was out here for a few days, and I and a couple of other people had lunch with him. And he was despairing of what he called the new crowd uh, in Washington, new crowd. And we asked him what he meant by that. And, and he meant, and he told us he was talking about Democrats and Republicans alike. And he talked about how when uh, he was first uh, in Congress in the 60s, that 60s or early 70s, I don't remember exactly, but when he was first in Congress, he talked about all the things we hear about all the time, that you could make this fiery speech one day uh, attacking someone's position and you'd go out to dinner with them that night and then you and your families would go away for the weekend together. And he said, for the new crowd, he said it's personal. They genuinely don't like each other. Um, and uh, those of you who've been unfortunate enough to be at other events I've been at over the last couple of days, you know, I've been pushing uh, this line about comedy mm. and consensus. Mm. And if you look at the Supreme Court, um, this is not a court that tries to find consensus. They just try to find five votes. Nobody's really interested in doing the hard work anymore, as was the court's long tradition of trying to fashion views that can actually command a majority. Certainly, I was interested in backing off their views in order to join uh, a majority. You look at the way I, I told the story this morning. I won't waste time telling it again now, but the, but the story about the difficulties uh, that one senator was talking to me about of 
even sitting down for a negotiation uh, with someone without activists screaming at you, uh, don't do it, what are you going to give away? Even, uh, uh, and, and he was telling a story about how the negotiator called off uh, when people started to call his, uh, uh, his office. Um, we don't work together very well. One of my mentors, Thurgood Marshall, for whom I was uh, a law clerk and also whose oral history I worked on, he used to, the highest common used to pay people is you could do business with them. Hmm. You can do business with them. His word was good, uh, he would say. And people have a hard time doing business. And if we're in a situation where we have a hard time doing business, even if we stick to our positions, which I agree with you, Arthur, we absolutely should, then it's not clear how we're going to be able to come together on aspirational leadership because we're not going to, we're going to have a lot of trouble finding the shared aspirations because we spend so much time eating each other's throats. And that's not just Donald Trump. This is a trend that's been going on, that's been getting worse for some time. So if we're looking for a moral consensus, it's not just the example that you give of uh, how things have changed in Washington and Congress, which, which I saw. And, and I agree with, with Arthur, you know, if we could get a moral consensus that we could come around as we used to maybe watching Walter Cronkite or whatever, you know, it'd be great. But it, it's not just at the level of, uh, in, in Congress, and it's not just the level of on broadcast. You know, we ourselves are divided not into red state, blue state, but red, red block, blue block. People who, uh, I, I could probably ask you all now to separate into those who only watch MSNBC and those who only watch Fox. Uh, and so, to some extent, you know, what the, the division that we're seeing and the lack of consensus is not something that, that those people out there are engaged in, but that we're engaged in. And so how do we get past that? How do, how do we build that common bond or the consensus that you're talking about? It's interesting. I mean, we, we probably could do a poll and, and the consumption of media would break down more or less on ideological lines. But the interesting thing, and I think the encouraging thing, is that, you know, if I asked my kids where is MS, MSNBC or Fox News on the dial? They wouldn't be able to, they wouldn't know. They wouldn't know what dial They would have no idea. They would have a dial. I mean, it's like, what a, it's like a dial is a metaphor for something at this point. And, and, uh, and so, it, so, but that's, that actually, I think, underlines the, uh, the opportunity that we have going forward with a new generation of people that are not bitterly divided naturally. You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. Today's episode, An Angry America, features Mickey Edwards, Anne-Marie Slaughter, Stephen Carter, and Arthur Brooks. In the next segment, Brooks argues today's state of discord in the U.S. and in Washington isn't unprecedented. In fact, it's been worse. So, so let's talk about how you establish a moral consensus with aspirational leadership and what that actually looks like. Uh, there have been cases where the, bitter, the bitterness and, and polarization has been worse than now, a lot of times in American history. It's actually worse. And I mean, the, the, the canonical example, of course, is the Civil War. But there are lots of times when, I mean, you talk about you know, bitterness on the floor and people not having dinner together. I mean, one guy basically almost beat another guy to death with his cane because of the Kansas-Nebraska Act. I mean, it, it is bad stuff. That, that has happened. And so this anger, once again, has repeated itself continuously throughout history. And then aspirational leaders have, have uh, emerged. Uh, they're not uncontroversial, to be sure. I mean, the one in my lifetime that really did that, that Mickey and I like a lot, of course, is Ronald Reagan. I grew up in a household that hated Reagan, that thought, you know, on Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays, he was stupid, and the other days, he was evil. 
And, and, and so and it was if Reagan's elected, you know, I was in high school, I remember it was uh, grandma's going to get thrown out in the snow, America's going to get into a war, was, was basically what we heard. But I remember this sensation, this kind of inchoate sense um, as a kid in, in a, in a left-wing home in Seattle that in a listening to him, I had to listen to him for credit, for high school credit or something, to you know, write his p a paper on a speech or something. And I remember thinking, he loves me. <laughs> he wants me to earn and to succeed. He wants me to work. Now, that's not, that's not trivial, is it? I mean, I, again, there are a lot of people in this room who still remember Reagan and think he was a really terrible president. But in point of fact, when you look at what he did at his nomination speech in Detroit in 1980, if you look at that and you do a word analysis on it, which I recommend, uh, you'll find that the single most common word in his speech uttered 89 times is people. His whole idea was bringing people together and, and, and non-traditional audiences for the Republican Party at that time. He talked about immigrants and he talked about working people. He talked about the poor. He talked about people who were left behind in society. And again, I know a bunch of you are going to say, yeah, but what did he do? I got it. But the <laughs> fact is that his rhetoric was inherently optimistic and aspirational. And that turns out to be the answer. Populism is not leadership. Why? Because it actually is a cipher for angerness and, 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 and frustration and anxiety and fear. And it, what it's effectively doing is looking at what people are afraid of, especially at the end of a long tail recession with an asymmetric recovery, and then running in front of the parade. That's followership. Leadership is that, that which looks at, at anger and fear and frustration and, and, and actually pivots to something that's better. And great leaders have always been able to do that. This is a call for actual leadership in our political sphere that could even match the quality of people today in American business. But I I, so I, I, I think it's really interesting what you say about Reagan. I think that is exactly what people will say about Obama in 20 years. Without any question, he ran on hope and change. He ran on change you can believe in. It was the most idealistic campaign of my life. I, it was, and, and indeed, I remember you know, various people, supporters of Hillary being very frustrated because it was so ideal. He invoked Ronald Reagan yeah. at the 2008 convention, uh, and the optimism that, that you know after eight years where we've been in wars and torture and all sorts of things, people thought we you know we're living our values, we're electing an African-American president. And I think much like Reagan, who when Reagan stepped down, he was not the Reagan we see today, and not close. But over time, people have looked back and seen a fundamental change in the direction of the American economy. Whether you like it or not, it was there. And I think people will look back and see Barack Obama did a tremendous amount to prepare us for the, the, the decade, the century we're now living in. Obviously, health care, but more than that, all sorts of innovations across, across government. But I don't think that's what we need right now. I have a more pragmatic point. We don't have a workers' party right now. Neither party represents American workers. And I'll, I'll say that, I and mean, that's what's going on between Hillary and Bernie, right? That, and Bill Clinton you know, took the Democratic Party to a more central place. He had to do that. It was essential at that point for where we were in our in politics. But the result is that right now, we don't have Franklin Roosevelt's Democratic Party. 
We don't have a party on the left or certainly on the right, because Donald Trump is not the working man's champion. I don't care what, well, how he sp spins himself. Look at, look at his own employment practices. We're not actually representing those people who are so afraid. And they see it. And, 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 it, and equally, we've lost empathy for them. Just take trade, and I, I, I will put myself here. I'm a free trader. I grew up believing you know, in the basic Pareto theory of free trade. You grow the pie, and then you redistribute it, and it's better for everybody. That's not working for people. It's just not working. It's fine in theory. It hasn't worked in practice. We haven't redistributed, and we don't see, we've lost our empathy for the white working man who was able to support his family, who no longer can, who everything he had that made him a man, that made him somebody to be respected in his community, is gone. And I speak as a feminist and somebody you know, who is thrilled about a lot of those changes, but we've lost that empathy and we've frankly lost that representation in our political system right and left. And I think that I'm all for the leadership, but I think we need a pretty fundamental realignment of our party structure so that we are in fact representing the mass of Americans who are saying, I don't know what the future holds and I'm frightened and I'm angry. You, I, 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 once, one small yeah. point on that. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Peter. Which is, you know, it, it, it's it's not even as optimistic as that. It's worse than that. <laughs> no, it's a small point. And 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 let me miss, there's, so there's two problems. One is you said we don't have a workers' party. No one's representing working Americans. No one's representing poor Americans okay. either. That yes. is my my issue with the two parties, neither of which I like. I'll be very frank. I don't like the Democrats or the Republicans has always, has long been poverty. I was raised at a time when the glory of liberalism was how we thought about race and poverty. And these are not big issues in politics today, and that's a loss. But let me put politics to one side, because I don't think that we are, that if, if there's a problem of anger in America, which I think there is, it's not clear why politics has to be the solution. That is, I, I think we may be putting too much on the system in thinking that, well, if Obama, well, if Reagan, well, if Roosevelt, and so on, and, and, yeah. and, and, and so on, I think those days are gone. I, I, think, I think that's gone. I, I, I think that one of the ways to build consensus, in a sense, is to move away from politics, at least electoral, partisan politics, to look for consensus in communities and elsewhere around things where people can actually work oh, together. Uh, and you talked about uh, uh, some of the mayors. I've been on panels with, uh, uh, for example, pro-life and pro-choice people talking about working together on adoption issues and yep. things like that. That is at the community level, not a program, not a Washington. And this is not a big government argument. It's just that, that the, I, I'm not sure the solution is going to be found there. And I think that politics today occupies too much of our lives. There was always anger in politics in the past, and it wasn't just uh, people being beaten. It wasn't just Charles Sumner being beaten. It was candidates sometimes being killed in the 19th century, some disappearing and never seen again. But politics was brief. Would you say people would spend a few weeks or maybe even a month or two <laughs> arguing about these issues? Right. Yeah, wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> Argu arguing about these issues, but they didn't have this constant investment. Every day, let's see what's going on in politics. Every day, 
let's look at a poll, that my entertainment is going to be following what's going on day after day after day. And if we don't escape that cycle, if we don't, all of us, take a breath and sit back and ask ourselves, not our politicians, what our aspirations are, what our values are, what holds us together as Americans, I just don't think politics is going to fix this. Oh, I, so I'm going to turn a second to the audience, but, but let me, uh, you're talking about the discordance, and first of all, uh, I don't like either party either. Uh, and um, Ronald Reagan, you know, carried 48 states, could not win a Republican nomination today. But, 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 but I, I think they're, they're, let's not ignore the part of, uh, of education. We, our education system is basically Votech now. It's teaching you, no matter even the best schools, you know, how to earn a living. Uh, and so one of the things, for example, on the Democratic side, that, that fueled the anger of people within the Bernie Sanders camp who were very critical of Barack Obama and they were frustrated because Barack Obama, they put, they voted for him and nothing happened because they don't understand our system. They don't under, you know, uh, they, they think the president's in charge. You know, that's not the way it works. That's, <laughs> that's not the American system of government. Most of the power is in Congress, and, and a lot of the people who are most angry don't vote in the midterms, you know, for, vote, for people in Congress. So you, I, I think there's a piece of this, is that people are angry because they haven't taken the effort and the schools don't teach them about how to engage with the system, how to understand the system, where the points are, and, and to, you know, make the change themselves. That's former Republican Congressman and Aspen Institute Vice President Mickey Edwards. Today's conversation from the Aspen Ideas Festival features Edwards, Anne-Marie Slaughter, Stephen Carter, and Arthur Brooks. Audience questions are next and include issues such as the economy, racism, and changing demographics. Thank you. Very interesting discussion. Arthur, I have a question for you. Ken. What are the implications internationally, positive and negative, of this current wave of anger for our position as the guarantor of the world's security and financial system. Hmm. The, it, it's a, you're make, Ken, this is Ken Buckfire and, and, and who teaches at Columbia, and so he thinks an awful lot about how to fix companies that are failing, and so he's thinking systemically about how we can fix our country and, and the international system as well, understanding that you, gotta, you have to have a guarantor that was embedded in your, in your, in your question. Yeah, indeed, indeed, loaded, loaded in the right way, in a very good way, I appreciate it. The, um, you know, anybody who's paying attention knows that there's nothing unique about American anger and populism right now. It's, it's spread around the world. Brexit is not a perfect example of that. I mean, people who look at the Brexit case and they say that's just an example of xenophobia and racism and bigotry, that's not exactly right because there's a whole, I mean, if, if, you, if you go over, you find lots of very, uh, very good people who say, I just don't want to be governed by a, a ridiculous bureaucracy in, in Brussels and I don't want to bail out Greece three times. And that's a different argument. It might be a wrong argument, but it's a different argument. So it's, it's an imperfect parallel, Trumpism and Brexit. But there is unbelievable levels of populism going on all over the world. I, li I lived in Spain for many years, and, I, and I'm, I'm looking with, I'm just awestruck at the rise of, of a Leninist party well, yeah. in Spain. I mean, Podemos <laughs> is a Leninist party. I mean, it, it's, uh, it's, it's something that we could never conceive of. It makes Bernie Sanders look like... Ronald Reagan. It's, it's really quite something. I mean, they say oh, Bernie Sanders, he's such a right winger, you know, because he doesn't want to abolish entirely the capitalist system. And so that's spreading around the world in a very big way. The United States uh, does best when it's a, it, it's, it's a beacon of stability. And when we actually see both parties, the candidates from both parties repudiating trade, 
you know, think about what this says. This is the post-war consensus. And what has trade done? I mean, Anne-Marie and I completely agree on this, that, that, well, number one, that we've made an inadequate case on how this is helping people, and we've done a terrible job at making people necessary who've been displaced by it. But, but my gosh, international trade has pulled two billion people out of starvation level poverty since 1970. I mean, it's literally, it's a humanitarian miracle. And it's the legacy of a bipartisan consensus, a moral consensus that came around that we should see our brother's keeper every place. And the best, the single best way, nobody's explained this to Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump, or at this point, apparently Hillary Clinton, that the best thing you can do for a poor person is trade with her. That's the best single thing that you can do. And, and so this is the biggest danger that we have on, on one particular dimension, is walking back the concept of moral globalism and the inherent virtues of free trade, not just for us, but to lift up the people at the periphery of our world community. This is a huge deal, and that's, what, that's something we could be suffering under for a very long time. Now, how long? How long? Um, we see three patterns in populism. One is sort of the Andrew Jackson pattern, where there's populism for two generations. <laughs> The second is, mentioned the William Jennings Bryan, the 12-year pattern. And the third is kind of the George Wallace pattern of populism where it's contained and extinguished at the regional level. The answer to that, which, we, which is going to occur, is a certain amount of serendipity. But it's, again, I mean, it, it really comes down to people who are going to step up in the next two years and repudiate a lot of wrong thinking that is going to leave a lot of people in the world behind. Neither of, none of you have mentioned the words racism or bigotry, and I think in my own mind that a lot of what is being branded as anger is really people now feeling entitled because of Trump and some of the other Republicans to be more open and less apologetic about their racism and bigotry. And I just wanted to throw that out there and get any thoughts and reactions about how you might feel. So, so I, I think it's a very important uh, uh, question, uh, but I, I want to be careful. That is, I, I would like us to have better and more serious conversations about race. We don't do that very well. That has nothing to do with whether someone's a racist or a right-winger or a left-winger. It's, it's a conversation we do poorly. Uh, a few years ago, you said no one's mentioned the word racism. A few years ago, I was on a television talk show, um, and we were talking about uh, priorities for the next uh, president. And uh, so this is, I guess, 2008, I guess. And we were going around the table. And it's, everyone on the table is a card-carrying liberal of some stripe or another. And people go around the table, you know, what are the priorities? Well, climate change you know, is the, big, the biggest priority. You know, ending the war is the biggest priority. You go on around the table. And I happen to speak last, I assume by coincidence. And when, I, and when it came around to me, I said the biggest priority now is the same as the biggest priority was 30 or 40 years ago, which is poverty and race. And my fellow panelists, the good card-carrying liberals, all turned on me and were angry on the program and in the green room afterwards. And they said, this is a distraction. So those things are very, very important, but we have all this other stuff to do first. Now, I mention this because, of course, there are racists out there. And of course, there are people who do vote this way or that way because of that. But I think it's a mistake to dismiss uh, all Trump supporters or all those who are angry for that reason, you know, we got 47 million people who uh, aren't uh, who aren't working. You include those who dropped out of the workforce. That's a lot, of, roughly. That's a lot of people uh, who are justifiably upset. I guess we could say. One of the things I think that the problem, 
And I'm a big free trader too, but the problem isn't just that it hasn't been sold properly. The problem is that every transition has costs. And the costs are not ever evenly distributed. It doesn't matter what you do. It, the, the, the transition, the policy reform that you think is most important in the world is going is to hurt someone. And we constantly market policy as though that's not true. We constantly market policy as though this has, we don't just say it's Pareto superior, we say it's Pareto optimal. You know, no one yeah, right. it's gonna is, is, is going to lose. just winners. And, and people hear that and then they say, but wait a minute, I lost. Nobody told me that was going to happen. And maybe some people did try to explain, maybe the message, so maybe people didn't hear it right, but some of the anger is that. And whether it's legitimate or not, I couldn't say, but it's real. It's a real sense. I did my part. I paid my dues. I worked hard. I had a job. I support my family. I tried to. And now look where I am. And, and the parties right now, they say, well, you know, the, the Republicans say, well, if we just cut tax, then we're going to say, if we just raise the minimum wage. And, and these strike me as, as not so much solutions as ways of trying to make the problem go away. Because there's a lot of people out there who are suffering. And it's not at all obvious to me that we've done a good job getting back to education, of, edu of edging into the seriousness of policymaking and the notion that in policy that there are always costs. There's always a downside, and it's often an unpredictable downside. We, it's, it's not all sweetness uh, and light. Yeah. I, wa yeah. I want to second the point about not recognizing that there really are losers here. And that's, I mean, to your point, Arthur, yes, it's pulled two billion people in the world out of poverty, but it's put people in Michigan and Wisconsin into poverty. And we rule, I mean, as, as children of the Enlightenment, we may believe in universal values and think globally, but, but we have responsibilities as leaders of national countries, not, not globally to think there. But I want to speak to an even bigger change. And this time last year at Aspen Ideas, I was on a panel with Eric Liu, and Eric Liu had written this wonderful article in the Democracy Journal about cultural literacy and how it's changing, what it means, what should you know as an American. And his opening line is, America is slowly, agonizingly, but inexorably. Being American is slowly, agonizingly, but inexorably being decoupled from being white. And that is every bit as profound as the technological change I was talking about. In 2050, when you say an American, that person will not look like all of us, most of us, many of us in this room. And that's enormous. It, there is racism, and, but there is also this sense, again, of, wait a minute, the world I knew is not the world I live in, and I don't recognize this anymore. And when you look, and you really can see it, when you look at Trump supporters versus Bernie supporters, I look at the America that was and the America that will be. And what we need now, I actually think, is less aspirational leadership than someone, I, not in my new America capacity, but in my individual capacity, I do think Secretary Clinton can do this, someone who's less about great aspirational speeches, and more about doing the really hard work of weaving the relationships across the aisle, yeah. uh, but also kind of community by community and, and, and slowly and painfully getting things done. 
Because I think that will actually make more of a difference. And bringing together, and I do think this is essential, the America that was and the America that's coming. Because it is, it is such an enormous change. It's a, you know, we will be at our sister centennial in 2026. And that America will look very, very different than the America, uh, certainly the America our founders recognized. Had we included all, uh, everyone as citizens, it would have been a little different. But that's a deep, deep change. Yeah, let, let me add to that. Uh, so James McGregor Burns, and, and many of you follow him, you know, we're insisting, and many other people do too, that what we are in great need of in this country is really transformational leadership. To which my response was, no, everybody thinks they're a transformational leader. We need transactional leadership. That's what, that's what we are really lacking today. Well, so I, I was told, I mean, we could go on. I know a lot of you have questions, but, but we're at the end of this. Uh, I think we are so lucky to have the three of you here. Thank you so much. Thank this you. Is really, uh, thank you for thank you. Anne Marie Slaughter is president and CEO of New America. She served as the first woman policy planning director at the State Department. Stephen Carter is a law professor at Yale. Mickey Edwards represented Oklahoma in Congress from 1977 to 1992. And Arthur Brooks is an author and president of the American Enterprise Institute. They spoke at the Aspen Ideas Festival in June. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please take a minute to rate us. It helps other people find our podcast. Follow the Aspen Ideas Festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenen and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of our public programs. Thanks for joining me.